Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fawcett's Intelligent Corporation Group. Really, really happy to have Tadir Siddharth here with us today. We were just meeting, I guess, two days ago at this point, or many people in this group, because we had Marta Belka here for a special episode of our Shooter Transaction podcast. And now we're shifting gears and are going to talk about how it is that human and human collectors are making progress. The topic of today will be collective intelligence for collective progress. Now, especially that we have better AI tooling for all of this in the mix. I'm super, super excited to hear what Divya has to say about this. I personally met Divya a few months ago when she was in San Francisco visiting for the Pluralis Institute Conference. And we're now collaborating also on a few individual bits and pieces. And maybe we can also dive in a little bit that in the Q&A. But for now, I think I'll keep my introductions to a wrapper and have you discuss a little bit more about collectors' intelligence for collectors' progress. And then perhaps also share a bit about the Collective Intelligence Project, which is the product that you co-founded. And so really, really delighted to have you here and super excited for what you have to share with us. Take it away. The stage is yours and I'll be in the chat, one or two questions and pop in when it's desired. Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I love a lot of the work that has been going on and has been shared in this group. Um as Allison mentioned, recently co-founded an organization called the Collective Intelligence Project with Saffron Huang, um, with whom a bunch of this work is shared. And so, you know, would encourage you to reach out to her uh, to learn more as well. Um, and yeah, I think today I will start from quite a high level, and I think I'd love to keep it pretty informal. We are in the early stages, especially of prioritizing a lot of the work that we want to do in the coming months. So one thing that would be really helpful valuable for us selfishly from the conversation is to get all of your thoughts on, you know, productive directions that you're thinking about overlaps between your work and ours. And I think I'd love to leave, you know, plenty of time to go over those things. So I'll cover a bunch of concepts sort of high level to give you a sense of what we're grounded in and where we're coming from, the the kind of problems that we think are currently important. And then from there, you know, hopefully we'll have a rich discussion, put questions in the chat throughout, et cetera. Feel free to interrupt me, although given where everything is on my screen, I may not see you. Um, amazing. So yeah, we're talking about collective intelligence for collective progress. To give you a sense of my background and kind of introduction to this space, I started working on questions of technology governance some years ago, but it's taken a bunch of different forms. I used to focus a lot on civil society and digital security, so threat modeling for social movements and questions like that. I spent a couple of years in India looking at social movements and technology broadly, and as well as, uh, you know, in addition to that, questions of data cooperatives and data centralization, kind of the issues with centralized data platforms. And I think that's what got me thinking about, you know, the much bigger questions in some ways around uh, centralized AI and the downsides with that. Um, took an eight-month detour from all of this and did pandemic policy, which I think gave me um, an unfortunately quite good sense of the fractured nature of decision-making of human collectives, even very powerful ones. I worked a lot in the U.S. on governance questions and COVID, um, and it made me think, what if we were much better at making decisions? And uh, since then, was at Microsoft's office of the CTO as an advisor for a while, as well as at Microsoft Research, focusing on these kinds of questions broadly, doing a lot of specific things. Just to say that I guess my intro or desire to do this really came from seeing a bunch of different types of decision-making structures, whether it was the more flat decision-making structures of social movements, some of the corporate structures that I was working under at Microsoft, a bit of the policy side on COVID, and just a lot of the meta problems that felt shared between them and kind of wanting to work on that fabric in particular. Um, so with that, what is collective intelligence, right? And I think 
this is not an authoritative definition. It's just the one that we're going for in the sense that collective intelligence means a lot of different things to different people. I see Josh is here. We're collaborating on a whole paper about this, so I'm sure he'll have thoughts. Um, but for us, what we are interested in is in particular collective intelligence capabilities. So decision-making technologies, processes, and institutions that expand a group's capacity to construct and cooperate towards shared goals. How do we do a better job making decisions, allocating resources, those kinds of things? I think it's a little bit of a practical take on collective intelligence. You can get quite abstract with the concept, um, but we're really interested in you know decision-making structures that can be put into practice. And, you know, when we think about collective intelligence broadly, I think there are a lot of stepwise changes and innovations that humans have made in what collective intelligence means to us. And this looks like a lot of different things. The invention of global currency, I think, was a massive achievement in collective intelligence, right? Um, Markets, democracy, institutions broadly, different ways of pooling risk. If you look at the birth of insurance, it came from allowing, you know, merchant ships to sail across the sea on difficult voyages. And we had these collective intelligence ways of pooling risk and ascertaining what was going to be profitable and what wasn't. Land grants and the way that, you know, land value taxes are allocated are a form of collective intelligence. You can think about standard setting organizations broadly as a form of collective intelligence, different kinds of governance within those organizations, whether it's rough consensus models or benevolent dictatorship models. Like I think there are many different ways that humans have arrived at structures that allow us to coordinate better and construct these shared goals and execute them, execute on them, right? So I think this just exists to widen our view of what collective intelligence might mean. Because I think there are times when uh, CI, uh, collective intelligence abbreviated as CI, gets kind of pigeonholed as something that's a little bit more just like small team collaboration or aggravating values and preferences. And we're looking at quite a zoomed out notion of what it might mean to build a collectively intelligent system. And just for that, I think it's fun to think about much um, even broader kind of notions of what collective intelligence can look like. And so really, if we had global governance entities, if we had different forms of dynamic resource allocation, uh, I think it's it's good to think about, you know, massively far out future possibilities of the kinds of alternatives we could really build if we took the collective intelligence innovations we've already made, like market mechanisms, like democratic mechanisms, and imagine different logical conclusions for them. Not all of these, I think, are good, but I think that they are all interesting. Um, and then the last kind of ingredient I'll put on the table before talking a bit more about the specific problems we want to solve are that, you know, we're particularly focused on collective intelligence and decision-making systems as they interact with transformative technology, which to us looks like technological advances with a high likelihood of significantly altering social structures. There are more, you know, quantitative definitions of things like transformative AI floating around that focus a bit more on X percent of GDP growth or taking over some part of the economy. I think for us, because we are broadly looking at the uh, evolution of human social structures, we imagine transformative tech as things that have a major difference there. So you could think of AI, you can also think of something like birth control as a transformative technology, I think, and, and be within our definition. And one of the major issues that we see coming out of this kind of question of transformative technology is what we might call uh, the transformative technology trilemma. So I'll pause here and sort of say, it's not the case that no one's thinking about how to govern technology, right? Obviously, basically everyone you've had in this lecture series is thinking about this question and, and hundreds of others besides. And I think one of the major issues that we located when we started the Collective Intelligence Project is this feeling that discussions around the governance of transformative technology were coalescing into three camps, essentially. 
And they implicitly or explicitly assumed the need to accept significant trade-offs between progress, which looks like advancing technological capabilities, um, participation, which looks like enabling public input and self-determination, basically democratic oversight, um, and safety, avoiding disproportionate risks. And so I think, you know, if we look, if we surveyed the landscape of a bunch of the people that we were talking to, it seemed that this kind of trade-off, implicit uh, assumption of trade-off reliably led to a set of three failure modes. Um, the first failure mode is something that we might call capitalist acceleration. Uh, so this path aims to incentivize and ensure technological progress, believes in kind of free market profit-driven development. And so there may be some notion of participation in the form of, say, consumer choice or investor choice. Risks are really just taken by those with the resources to take them. And safety isn't really that much on the table. So this might look like a proliferation of venture capital-funded AGI and biotech startups. It might look like private geoengineering initiatives. It might look like the takeoff of unregulated decentralized finance. And I think the upsides of this path are real in the sense that we get a lot of technological advances that we may not otherwise get. Um, but the downsides include proliferating risk, uh, like say, using technologies to edit pathogens or private geoengineering uh, initiatives gone wrong, and a lack of public oversight, so minimal regulation or auditing, and minimal ability to kind of channel advances into the provision of public goods. And I think these downsides might be especially significant when it comes to transformative AI, because in that case, you're applying the structure of one basically value flattening optimizer to another, where you're taking market mechanisms and you're applying them to uh, to creating different reward-maximizing entities. Um, the second uh, failure mode, we might call something like authoritarian technocracy, which looks like sacrificing uh, participation for safety, maybe allowing some level of progress. And this path is really built on the belief that ensuring safety requires entrusting only some entities, whether it's individuals uh, or com companies or nation states, uh, with the ability to develop these advanced technologies. This is often coupled with the assumption that collective participation, any form of democratic oversight might be too dangerous, right? Too hard to coordinate, too slow, too risky, or it might lead to lower quality decisions. So you estrove participation entirely. And I think this might look like something like the logical outcome of the vulnerable world hypothesis, which, you know, advocates for global surveillance in the face of catastrophic risks, or it might look like the CCP's response to COVID which was defined by right strict monitoring, regulation, and calculation. And the argument is pretty simple and easy to understand. As the world becomes more dangerous, control structures must become more severe. This looks like kind of curtailing certain aspects of collective intelligence to mostly focus just on the control piece, not the participation piece. And even when we do have technological advances, they're harnessed for mass monitoring capabilities to ensure this kind of control, eroding rights from privacy to free speech to due process. And again, we might say this path does have upsides, including an understanding and an avoidance of risk, which we might agree is important. Maybe it makes it easier to coordinate a pandemic response. I can say from my experience, whatever we had in place, not make it particularly easy to coordinate a response, right? But the downsides include the risks of illegitimacy. So like protests against the zero COVID policy, um, the well-documented failures of things like central planning, the calculation problem. But I think also, and it's important to say just the basic injustice of what it looks like to take people's rights away because, you know, there's some broader global good that you're aiming for. So this this has some upsides in terms of avoiding risk, but I think the costs are incredibly high 
Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of unknowns and knowns that can be raised by this process. And then the third failure mode is something that we might call shared stagnation. That it looks like sacrificing progress for participation, maybe investing in some safety. And this path, I think, typically combines a lot of anti-technology priors with concerns about worsening global conditions, often paired with a desire for greatest, greater forms of local production, direct democracy, and things like this. And tools for advancing this path can look like anything from regulation to direct calls to halt technological investments and prioritize kind of ending or stopping technological progress. And I think the upsides of this tech are that it has, in some ways, a more clear-eyed analysis of power than the other two. We really, you know, there's some understanding that there are harmful things that need to be slowed down. But at the same time, it can include a lack of investment in necessary, you know, redistribution or development and often undervalues the need for large-scale coordination, which is probably necessary in the face of global crises. Um, and so... I think we see all of these paths as genuinely having some upsides, but mostly resulting in really dramatic failure modes for humanity and most of our collective intelligence mechanisms as tending towards one of these paths. So I think broadly, you might say something like market mechanisms writ large are tending towards a path of progress, democratic mechanisms towards a path of participation, technocratic, institutionalized, bureaucratic mechanisms towards a path of safety, but we're not doing a good enough job mixing the positive aspects of those different priors in order to create something that had the upsides of all three paths without the failure. Um, and so I think a bunch of our work is around what building that fourth pathway might look like. And a lot of what we want to do is enable specific experiments along those lines. And I think I'll go through just a few more concepts that we're thinking about just because I'm curious for folks' thoughts on them and then end with a couple of the experiments we're currently trying and then open it up in case folks have thoughts for other things that we should be focusing on. Um, so I think a lot of where we're coming from on what kinds of things we want to try are things that seem to break existing binaries between two options that we think, you know, we have to either pick one of these two things. And, and there are three of these. The first one, I think, is around decentralization and centralization. So We've done some work on decentralized governance broadly, and I think there is a tendency to sort of, you know, in some circles, see decentralized mechanisms anarchic and, and ridiculous in a lot of ways that they'll never work, that they're very redundant. So we need to have centralization for things like safety and control. And on the other hand, to see centralization as a massive harm, right? Concentration of resources and, and productive power is really concerning. So we need to invest in like really significant decentralizing capacities. And I think these both miss something which is that historically, decentralization and centralization have been in somewhat of an unproductive cycle over time almost, rather than investing in one, uh, canceling out, investing in the other. So if you take something like the days of the early internet, you might say it was quite decentralized at the beginning with protocols like TCPIP. Um, but centralization is really difficult to forestall. And I think people who pushed really hard for decentralization didn't have a clear analysis um, of power relationships that were going to lead to some of the monopolies that we see today. And so we're looking at what it might look like to intentionally build something like polycentric systems, for example, for standard setting um, or for building the digital commons uh, that take into account the fact that decentralized systems tend to recentralize unless you actually designate specific centers of power. So one project that we're broadly doing is around generative models and the digital commons, where we're looking at what is going to be the impact of things like generative AI on our shared epistemic infrastructure? We're working with a couple of Congress people in California on this and trying to really think about, okay, we don't want to have a monopolistic 
you know, we don't want to end up with a bunch of monopolies in this space, but we also don't think that purely decentralized structures might have the participatory or safety components that we might want to see. So what kinds of standard setting processes can enable productive polycentrism? And for those who don't know, polycentrism as a concept comes from the work of Eleanor Ostrom. So she looks at how if decision-making centers take each other into account in both competitive and cooperative relationship and have um, uh, recourse to conflict resolution mechanisms, they might be regarded as polycentric, right? And she looks at it in the case of natural resources, but different kinds of commons, I think, tend themselves or lend themselves to polycentric structures. So we can talk more about, you know, what we're looking at there. Um, this is one example of what polycentrism might look like. So ideally, it puts together, you know, having centers of power such that you have the coordination capacity of centralized actors, say administrative districts, with having enough decentralization because there is competition between those centers of power and they act autonomously um, so that you can you know, ensure that none of those central actors are able to exert veto power over any of the other ones. Um, the second binary that we're focusing on is that between public and private goods. And so traditionally, you know, you might see something like private goods as the purview of the market and public goods as the purview of the state, right? And that's because we imagine um, public goods as the kinds of things that we can't privatize and therefore the state has to provide. And I think what we want to look at are there are many goods for which it's cheaper to provide the benefit to a lot of people rather than incur the sum of the costs of individual provision. Examples range from, you know, public health to digital infrastructure to research. And so these go beyond the class of goods typically designed, defined as public goods, capture an expanded range of goods and systems characterized by increasing returns. And so as tech development accelerates, we imagine many more kind of goods and systems will fall into this category. And so um, if we imagine these as super modular goods where we just take super modularity as meaning that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, how do we better provide um, or create provision mechanisms for these kinds of entities? So that's another stream of research. We're working with some of the retroactive funding, quadratic funding experiments around this and around funding super modularity. Also, some of the impact evaluation questions around this. Um, oops. And then I think the last one is around... Uh, complexity and participation. And so this is uh, the project that Allison and I um, have been chatting about. And basically, I think there's always been an issue in democratic governance between whether you can have very complex, large-scale decisions being made in a meaningfully participative way. Um, and there's a lot of critiques of, you know, basically, will people ever have the information to make good decisions over complex questions that they don't have expertise over? And as decisions become more macro scale, what does it even look like to have meaningful participation? Um, and I think this is kind of where some of the language model questions come in, where you can imagine language models mitigating sort of entrenched trade-offs between complexity and effective participation and decision-making. These kinds of trade-offs have been as observed across contexts. So everything from like COSIS observations on the limits to the size of centralized firms, right, or Robert Dahl's work on citizen participation in industrial-scale democracies, there's just an assumption that you can't aggregate qualitative information that's meaningful in the same way that you can aggregate quantitative information that's meaningful. So we have statistics for aggregating quantitative information in a bunch of ways. We don't have parallel ways to do that with qualitative information to allow for participation at scale. And I think this is where some of the questions around whether language models can allow for that. Can you aggregate people's qualitative information such that you can have participation and complexity at the same time. 
um, we're trying to run some pilots around language model augmented citizens assemblies to look at whether you can have like far lower cost, far faster run citizens assemblies that take this augmentative capacity into account for things like translation, summarization, facilitation, consensus building, um, and things like that. Um, and we're uh, chatting with the folks at Polis and different kind of organizations that are looking at those questions as well. Uh, so just wanted to go through a few of the kinds of interventions that we're looking at, but um, I think this more broadly speaks to the types of questions that we're trying to solve at CIP. Uh, and we're running a couple of pilots already, but I think are looking for what the highest impact things to do next might be. And so I'll open it up for questions now to get a sense of if anyone has thoughts on that. Very cool. I love it. So much to unpack here and so much also that I've been recurring themes also in our group, including in the Gaming the Future book and so forth that we wrote. And there's a bunch of things, I think, that we need to unpack. So I'm really glad that we have almost 45 minutes for it. Okay, first I'm going to go with questions from the audience and then I have my own moment that you guys run out here. Yeah, I don't know if you want to make your comment here as to something that was missing from the earlier bit in case you want to unmute. Yeah, sure. A great presentation. Um, my minor comment um, at the beginning was that religions um, should probably be considered uh, some form of uh, collective intelligence technology. And I, I also think 4chan-esque memes, um, it's almost frankly... Uh, unfortunate if you actually understand how they work in detail, which would mean that you'd spend a lot of time on 4chan. Um, but but they they certainly qualify as well. Um, and then I'm kind of going back and forth with Bengo on uh, what acceleration or socialist uh, acceleration even means, because I've not heard the term before. Uh, sorry, what what did you... Can you elaborate on the acceleration question? I, I wasn't sure where you were going uh, yeah, to be clear, I I, um, I didn't sort of have a, a question for you. Um, it was more sort of uh, me replied to the site, Bengo, but Allison just kind of asked me to elaborate on the comments that I made in um, Zoom. Um, I think maybe the, the one that's more relevant for your presentation would be your thoughts on religion um, or, or uh, 4chan-esque memes on, uh, you know, collective intelligence. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm just looking at the chat now. So I have more context. Yeah. I mean, I do think there are tons of ways. I mean, family structures in some sense are collective intelligence mechanisms, right? Neighborhood groups are collective intelligence mechanisms. And I think you can take a pretty broad brush to say, okay, some things are commodified CI and we might put those in market categories. Some things are more mutual aid oriented and we might put that in like uh, cooperative collective intelligence mechanisms and things like that. But I think if you really try to enumerate all of the ones we had, it would be massive. And I, I totally agree that the ones you've mentioned are on the list. In terms of, so I think if by socialist acceleration, you were referring to the capitalist acceleration chunk of the trilemma, um, then yeah, I think there are, I guess Peter Thiel's ideology broadly is a good example of capitalist acceleration in my mind in terms of like a desire, a, a thought that the greatest social good is probably achieved by like accelerating development through the free market or something like that. I think since Maybe, I have uh, a question, I might go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy to well. also kind of explain the gist of my point, which is like, if you, and it might be helpful to look at the slide with the triangle on it. 
but it was just sort of poking at to what extent is the ad capitalist additive actually helping it be more participatory versus other additives or a lack of adjective you could put there, right? Participatory acceleration would probably be quite participatory. And at some point, you may have to choose one value over the other. And I'm curious, like, what um, other adjectives or lack of adjectives did you explore to make sure it, it would, and where would those lie on the triangle was the question. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I imagine something, if we're, if you mean socialism in quite like a central, centrally planned economy kind of sense, then. Um, I'm definitely eager to back out of the socialist thing and just maybe like be like no adjective <laughs> or participatory acceleration, because that wasn't necessarily my point. I was just associating with that, with participatoryness or sociality. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess I would not associate it with too much participation because I guess there are different modes of participating in a structure. And maybe this is a philosophical question of how participatory you think market mechanisms are. To me, I think there is a weak sense in which they are very participatory and they're great information aggregators, but there's a lot that they miss, right? And so I think capitalists may not be the only uh, modifier that you could use onto acceleration, but I see it as missing out a lot of the more qualitative elements of what participation participation might look like. So pure accelerationism might just work. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure you would need a modifier, but I don't, at least in my view, I'm, I'm not sure it would be fully participatory. Awesome. Thanks. I, I have another question. Um, yeah, another question later, yeah, but maybe yeah. someone I mean, else if it's on go. the topic... If it's on the topic, I would say ask it now, then look. Yeah, the, the other question I asked that I'm just curious for Divya's thoughts on is like, you mentioned polycentrism and it, I'm curious if you make a distinction between federation and polycentrism or whether they're sort of, you know, similar. What is there a meaningful difference that would contrast them? Yeah, so um, I completely stole this diagram, but if you look at, I think there are ways to put together subsidiarity or federation and polycentrism. So to me, the principle of subsidiarity, quite similar to the principle of federation, is can we have decisions at the most local possible level? And so for some decisions, the most local possible level might be the street, right? But for some decisions, the most local possible level might still be fairly global in the sense that if you look at global carbon markets or something like that, the most quote unquote local possible level is pretty high up. And I think so subsidiarity tries to route decisions to the appropriate level of decision making. I think that works well in concordance with polycentrism, but polycentrism is a bit different because it is the polycentricity all happens at one level of decision making. And then you can have multiple levels within that, if that makes sense. And so you might want different centers. I mean, the, the famous Ostrom example is around administrative districts. And so these administrative districts, uh, you might think that it would be redundant for multiple different districts to have, you know, some decision making power over a natural resource. And I think it came, her work on this came out of a bunch of people saying, this is an inefficient way to make decisions, basically. Uh, every resource should be governed by one entity, and that would be much more efficient. And, you know, models proved that this was the case. And she went out and did field work and said, no, actually, although it may seem inefficient to have redundant kind of polycentric coverage over a particular resource, it actually has worked better in X and Y ways because it means that, you know, it's more resilient. There's not a single point of failure special interests find it harder to capture and things like that. And so that level of polycentrism isn't quite about federated levels of decision-making. It's more about kind of autonomous input of different centers of power onto something. And it's still a designed process in the sense that not every polycentric system succeeds, obviously, and not every federated system succeeds. And if you look at 
like local government in the U.S., I think it's a good example of a pretty decently set up federal system that is now throwing up a bunch of major issues on a lot of levels. Right. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of how I see the two the two things being different, but still interacting productively. Also, let us know in case you want to make another comment here, Bengo, but in the absence of that, I would go to David. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for all this, Divya. I was um, I was just trying to get a sense, especially in the beginning, you were covering a, a rather broad survey of all this different history of um, of different collective intelligence tools. And so I was just trying to get a sense of by what metrics you find most effective to evaluate their their various virtues and, and demerits. And yeah. Yeah, this is a great and very difficult question. I mean, I think when we started, you know, to, a peek behind the curtain is something like, can you be more or less collectively intelligent? Is the goal to be more collectively intelligent, right? What would that mean? And you get into a lot of questions of what intelligence means. Um, and or are we trying to evaluate, you know, on these three things that we think are important, participation, progress and safety? Then would we go back and evaluate these mechanisms in terms of whether they deliver on these three things and how successfully? Um, I think they're both they both can be productive approaches. I think for us, we moved away from thinking about like this is more or less collectively intelligent, more into um, you know, can we evaluate on these three kinds of ways that we might want to direct technology development? Because I think broadly, it's difficult to say something is more or less intelligent in a context-free sort of sense. Um, but I think there are, you know, ways to judge the collective intelligence of something like a decision-making system and some metrics that people propose and have some quantitative uh, apps behind are like pluralism or diversity, right? So are you taking input from meaningfully different sources? And there are different ways that you can quantify that. You can say, you know, very basic measures of diversity. Or if you're looking at a collective intelligence system that's not even fully human, like how different are things on metrics and can we aggregate like a different score uh, between things, clustering and things like that. Um, another one might be like speed and scale of decision making. So that's a way to say like, at what level does this system work? Um, I think other ones are fidelity. And so this one's a, lo- a bit harder to capture, but to what extent did like each individual input get represented in the output of a system? And so there are, if you, different kinds of systems might look at fidelity in different ways. Obviously on the more social structure side, you might think of something like legitimacy. So to what extent did the decision that was outputted, uh, you know, how legitimate did it feel or was it uh, for the group of people that made that decision? So I do think it ends up being somewhat context specific. I think the broadest ones are probably something like diversity and fidelity. Um, but what does it mean to make a good decision? Like, I think that it's quite difficult to, to find an objective way to do that. And so we've been triangulating it through those questions of diversity and fidelity on one hand, and then through these values that we've just reported as an organization on the other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Appreciate you unpacking that. Wonderful. Uh, thank you. We're going down the list here and have Mike up next. Hey, how are you? Thank, thank you so much for all your great work. Um, yeah, so I was wondering, you meant, you talked about um, your efforts to take advantage of, of kind of uh, qualitative data. And I was wondering, like, what specific qualitative variables uh, you see as most valuable um, in, in this decision making? that you currently um, 
her effectively? Uh, sorry. So the question is right now it's easier to, or I, I said this thing about it's easier to kind of aggregate quantitative data than aggregate qualitative data. What are the kinds of qualitative inputs that we might want to aggregate? Right. Um, well, I mean, I, like Alice and I have chatted about this a bit. I think a lot of decision-making inputs end up being quite difficult to snap to purely quantitative frameworks. This is why voting is such a lossy kind of capture of information, right? And yet we um, do a massive amount of qualitative data aggregation, whether it's actually as part of the democratic process, things like comments and town halls and all of these different kinds of things, or whether it's just adjacent to that process. For example, the many Microsoft Teams messages I used to send to people all the time, right? And what does it mean to understand meaningful information from that kind of corpus of text? I think we're very crude in our ability to understand anything from large sets of qualitative inputs like that. And, you know, I think to there's there's a difficulty here in terms of the sort of like revealed preference versus participation question of like, what if you took the approach that, oh, if I just read all your social media data, say, and aggregated it really well, like, I would truly understand what you wanted. And I think, just to be clear, like, that's not exactly what we're advocating for. But I do think in terms of intentional decision-making processes, you can get a lot out of things like surfacing points of consensus or points of disagreement. Um, you know, translating between points of view is something that we're uh, very early working on. Zach, on my co-founder, is doing some work around this. Um, so... These kinds of ways that are almost more facilitative than aggregative purely. Uh, so you can do some aggregation to say like, oh, I have these 20 statements. What's the mean of those statements? What's the median of those statements? Like, I think that itself would be somewhat interesting in terms of translating a quantitative point of view onto a qualitative one. But what would be even better is sort of doing that in a back and forth kind of augmentative sense of just like with quantitative statistics, how do we get more granular in terms of like seeing the full picture of what we're putting forward? Cool. So just about kind of automating preference aggregation as opposed to requiring people to go through the effort of filling out a bunch of forms and voting on things. Is that the primary goal there? Um, I don't think it's automating as such. In fact, I think we may ask people to comment on more things, if anything. Um, but I do think it's getting better output from what those comments do. So right now, if you talk to like public policymakers who do requests for comments, huge percentage of them like don't know what to do with any of the comments that people write in. And people actually do write. I was surprised about this. Like a ton, people spend a lot of time like writing in to their Congress people, writing in to requests for comments. There are all of these kind of inputs that you could take into account more productively that it's now very difficult to figure out what to do with. And so partly it would be kind of getting a better emergent sense of what's already being said and allowing people to comment on that. So something a bit more of a feedback loop of imagine, you know, you had a town hall and you were able to use a language model to build out statements of consensus and dissensus from that. And then people could just agree or disagree with whether that represented their point of view. Like that would be a much more granular approximation of people's real preferences than what we currently are able to do. Cool. So like you could ultimately uh, create a, a bill or something from the if you if you had a direct democracy um, from the aggregated aggregated of like qualitative statements of all the participants in the democracy. 
Yeah, I think possibly. I think this kind of thing is a little bit more helpful at like one level more abstract. I mean, in that sense, I think we're always trying to put together measures of democracy with measures of technocracy, right? Um, so do we want people to basically all be on a Google Doc writing legislation together? Like I think for various reasons, maybe no. And yet we still do want a better understanding of the kind of risks and trade-offs that folks are, you know, care about. So something that we might want to do this for is like, say, content moderation for language models, which currently is, you know, that wouldn't even likely be a bill. It might be something that's more like standard setting. Well, we want a sense of the kinds of risks that people broadly are willing to take and not to take. We probably don't want like direct wording choices being made in a directly democratic fashion. And this kind of allows for, um, right now we might not ask people at all what they think because it's so impossible to do that in a machine readable way. And instead of that, can we, you know, hold some sort of augmented citizen assembly, emerge some of those consensus into census statements, and then translate that into something that actually informs technological development? Like, I think that's kind of the use case we're imagining. Cool. And I just have uh, one real other quick question. Um, have you, are you aware of research on kind of the optimal size of a country? You talked about localization uh, versus kind of federal governance, which is a lot more susceptible to capture by special interest due to the fact it's a lot cheaper to influence 535 members of Congress and influence 50 states, like on the, the Congress of each state individually. Um, but there seems to be like a human tendency and desire for massive centralization, even though you see like well-being outcomes in Russia and China and the United States are, are much lower than in smaller, like, like Norwegian countries and, um, so, so are you aware of like kind of like an optimal um, size of a country to um, to maximize, I guess, general welfare? Honestly, no, I have never seen anything that looks at the optimal size of a country. But if you find something that sounds fascinating and I'd love to read it. OK, wonderful. Next up, we have if you're unable to unmute, I can also read out your question. He mentioned that you mentioned foundation and if you have any idea of how well to visualize this. I'm guessing this was probably in one of your slides at 224. So Wait, like foundation, the, the trilogy the of the slide. Yeah, I, uh, I noticed so, the mention, the, mention the, 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 the movie or the video or the book or just that the, the symbology behind that, um, like a psycho architecture, you know, how you, you can study, you know, the past and you know the future and all that kind of stuff. Just wonder if that was kind of like the same thing that all this was in. Oh, um, like is collective intelligence similar to psychohistory? Yeah, like, you know, studying the past, you know, the future. Um, I guess in a very abstracted sense, they're both ways of collective decision making, but it's not exactly how I see it because, I mean, so the, for those who haven't read Asimov Foundation, um, you know, there's this concept of, of psychohistory where you try to kind of, it's almost like physics laws in terms of, you know, extrapolating out the future from the past. I don't think that's directly what we're working on, but I imagine that that would fall broadly under the umbrella of something that is kind of like a collective intelligence mechanism. I do think in terms of the context of the trilogy, there's sort of, I mean, it's, it's like, quite a technocratic approach to governance within the context of foundation. And so in that sense, uh, it's not my personal dream for the future, but I do think there are uh, interesting aspects to it. 
real quick, I um, what I thought about it when I saw it was that I thought of like I think it's what's it called the that protocol that it's not it's not like Dropbox or like Google Docs, but it's a uh, federated like like laptop to laptop. Is it IPFS? I think that's IPFS. Yeah. Yeah, just just the idea that you could have a decentralized system, kind of like those ships that are a ship that's on that planet. You know, it's like houses all information from civilization. You could kind of do that with. As I, I saw you mentioned Society Library, and you and you have um, if you had all these nodes with all the information that you would need to get anything done, members would just have to come together and to achieve a goal with that information repository and access to whatever resources they need. Yeah, this is a bit of a tangent, but I was um, reading Ian Banks' uh, essay on, like, his... So he's also a science fiction author, uh, wrote uh, the Culture series, and he had a stunningly optimistic take on human governance, uh, which is great, where he was saying that, you know, in some situations, his take was something like, if we were a spacefaring civilization, then, um, you know, because there is such a high degree of cooperation needed to sustain life in space, basically, that it would inherently lead to some kind of like decentralized mutual aid system. Obviously, the culture series, which he writes, is like economically post-scarcity in a lot of sentiments. So that makes all of these kinds of things easier. But um, yeah, it's a great essay. It's very optimistic, um, which is sometimes rare. I'll put it in the chat. Not to bring this further, of course, but I don't know if you saw that the Falcon Foundation recently announced a first of its kind mission to deploy the interplanetary file system in space, taking place in 2023 aboard Lockheed Martin's LM400 technology demonstrator spacecraft. And I recently met one of the guys who was like leading that effort. And I think that will be an interesting celebration of many of these tangents happening in space this year. Hopefully, let's see. I'll update you at least when it's happening. Okay, yeah. wonderful. In the, oh, we have another question. Okay, I will table mine then for a second until Mike. Hi, sorry. Um, I had one more. Uh, I was wondering about, I think, uh, Bingo, Bingo uh, mentioned one. I was wondering if you had any other uh, thoughts on the best kind of tools for operationalizing oper, oper, collective intelligence in organizations to... Um, to make optimal decisions in order to achieve or maximize some desired key performance indicator? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge opportunity in terms of building collective intelligence tools into kind of uh, enterprise architecture, basically. Like, so I'm a little bit anchored because I was at Microsoft for a while, but there is so much possibility for things like CI architecture on OneDrive or on Teams that could do a bunch of the things that we were talking about in terms of like surfacing consensus, allowing people to have much richer conversations quickly, having like really quick, you know, we already have polls functionality, but something that's much more advanced than that in terms of expressing preferences, clustering, uh, things like that. Lumio, which is built by the cooperative and spiral kind of does this a bit with small group decision making. Um, but it's still targeted a bit more towards like, uh, I guess political adjacent decision-making. And I think there's a lot that you could do in terms of just teams collaboration. Um, there's a MIT Center for Collective Intelligence that has been looking at these kinds of questions for a while, just specifically from like a team collaboration lens. They actually, I mean, it's very different than the nation state question, but they do have a bunch of what's the optimal team size, for example, which uh, looks at, you know, what is the right structure for a team? What kinds of like personality or, or 
expertise balances work the best in terms of people working together? What are the right augmentative tools for that? So that might be something that you find interesting. Nesta's uh, Center for Collective Intelligence has also written a bit on this. Thank you. Also, do you have any uh, examples of the closest thing to kind of real world uh, implementation of direct democracies in in small nation states or... Um, uh, I mean, I think the canon, the canonical examples are like Taiwan and Estonia on this. Um, I do think they're, um, you know, expanding some of the platforms that they're using in Taiwan uh, to, you know, other types of entities. I don't think any nation states have adopted them nearly at that scale yet. Um, The Polis team is working with a bunch of different groups through USAID to do more direct democracy through Polis um, in different places. I think Demos... And Radical Exchange Voice are doing some of this in Colorado um, around citizen assemblies that can direct some of their climate efforts. So those are all, I think, really great examples. And is there any quantitative data trying to uh, measure like general welfare of these communities to see if this uh, if direct democracy produces uh, better outcomes than the current? Yeah. So. I think a bunch of that work has, so some of that has been done on more traditional citizen assemblies. So if you, the OECD put out a year ago or something, a report on citizen assemblies and various quantitative metrics, I think the things they looked at were things like trust, legitimacy, satisfaction, as opposed to if you're imagining like, you know, what the actual outcomes were and trust and satisfaction seems to be higher often with direct dem- democratic initiatives. The interesting thing about citizens' assemblies that I think is good is that they are not, I mean, they're directly democratic within the assembly, but they operate through a sampling process in terms of figuring out who should be a part of that assembly, right? So they're a little bit more just like scalable and realistic in a lot of senses than actually like fully directly democratic initiatives across, as you say, like a large population like the United States. Um, so I think there has been a bunch of those kinds of things. In terms of broadly, how do people feel about democracy? There is obviously like a massive amount of work on that. And I think there are a lot of times when legitimacy goes up, there are still some times when legitimacy goes down. It depends a lot on trust in the state or the other actors, how captured it looks like the democratic process is. If you look at kind of an index like the V-DEM index, which uh, tries to quantitatively measure just like different aspects of democracy across countries, things like freedom of the press, um, you know, confidence in executive actors, decision-making structures, et cetera. There's like a massive amount of work done on top of that database in terms of how different levels of democracy influence people's welfare. And I mean, broadly, there is a correlation between democracy and higher welfare, but there's also a correlation between democracy and richer states. And so like, I think that kind of gets into like more complex questions of where the correlation comes from. Um, Yeah. It seems like you could control Lots of good stuff in. for the wealth of the state. Um, but in general, so in general, it seems better. The more, the better. In general, it seems better, but it's tied to a bunch. I mean, economists will tell you it's like tied to better private property laws. And that's why welfare goes up in democracies, right? Like, I think there are a lot of different kinds of aspects of what democratic, like what the existing form of liberal democracy in the West, for example, which is actually quite a contingent mode of what dem- democracy could look like comes along with. Um, that makes it difficult to purely isolate the democratic components of it. But I mean, there are other places that you can look at it too. Like what is, you know, worker cooperatives versus hierarchical corporations, I think is a classic kind of A-B test of this sort of thing. And 
some studies will show that worker co-ops are more resilient to downturns because people are more willing to sort of like take furloughs and things like this and feel more bought into the health of the organization longer term. And they often do better during recessions. There are downsides to worker co-ops in the sense that because people, they, they often will not want to hire because it might dilute their ownership shares or things like that. There's work on like worker co-ops in Germany that show this. And so again, I think there are a bunch of welfare measures that go up if you take like a more Democrat, uh, if you go towards Democratic ownership, but there are also second order effects and certain kind of entities lend themselves better to it than others. But broadly, again, I think there is, um, you know, positive indications, I would say. But a lot of it comes down to content. Thank you. Okay, we have a bunch more questions, though. Let's see if I'll ever get to mine. But first, with Michael. Thanks, Allison. Hey, Nivia. Really cool work. Um, yeah, so my question is like, you know, go to the future. Imagine you've succeeded, you collected you, and you've you know, found this work path. You've built this amazing new system, whatever it is. And we're making, you know, decision, collective decisions way more effectively than we were in 2022. How do you, do you think about how you ensure, you know, that we're in a good position to do the next sort of upgrade after the one that you're currently working on? And do you imagine that there should be some sort of, you know, org in place that's sort of like the keeper of the CIP upgrades? Um. That's such an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thought I had is I should have added to my metrics earlier around what makes a good collective intelligence organ um, like process, something like adaptability. And I think it would sort of not be in some sense a super successful fourth path if we had to make just like complete stepwise changes to something else, right? And I also do think there's something quite process-oriented about a lot of this work where we'll never, and we'll, we won't, completely enter into a new paradigm and then pause and then completely enter into another new paradigm. Um, however, I do think that, especially if we're looking at transformative technology, things are changing quickly enough that we don't know what the needs or the capabilities will look like in a decade, let alone uh, in a long time from now. And so, you know, in some sense, solving for decision-making is solving a meta problem where we can make better decisions over what we do in that next step. That will be, it's, it's like a path-dependent question. In terms of the kinds of organization we'd want to hold this, I mean, I think ideally what we would love to see is a portfolio of experiments around collective intelligence and technology where different organizations genuinely run differently. I doubt we will solve it in the sense that we'll be like, oh, this is the perfect structure for a corporation. Not that you were suggesting, but like this is the perfect structure for a corporation. And like at some point we'll need to change it. I think it will be that we will actually, right now, we are very crude in how we look at collective intelligence, where tons of corporations run very similarly. Many nation states run very similarly. We're actually, what we want to see is much more difference in how these entities are run, as opposed to more similarity towards a different approach, if that makes sense. And so that will put us in a better place to be able to deal with the adaptations that are necessary in the future. Cool. So like more ongoing experimentation, basically. Yes, that was a way more succinct way of putting it. Cool. Thanks. I have maybe a more philosophical question about this, but um, thinking back of the kind of like trilemma you mentioned, and then afterwards the decentralization and centralization like um, errors, I'm wondering how they interrelate because in my head at least, why folks, maybe in our group, or maybe I'm projecting here, but why folks are excited about capitalism is the more participatory and decentralizing structure of it. 
And so I wonder if this trilemma could almost become the same errors as like centralization, decentralization, because to the extent that a capitalist structure is decentralized, it is per- participatory. And so there that, that dichotomy isn't that strong. And so if, if you mostly have these decentralized and centralizing dynamics in place, and I think many folks would agree that we could have maybe an accelerationist decentralized paradigm that also has to account for safety, which is something that we often at least discuss in this group. And I think there it's like, A, how do you avoid decentralized participatory frameworks from centralizing too much? That's the one trap that they fall in. And I think you pointed that out. And we also discussed often like compensating dynamics here, multipolar structures, polycentric structures and so forth. And then the second one would be, how do you avoid that more decentralized paradigms actually um, have no mechanism to account for the bunch of risks that they create as externalities along the way? You know, for that, we usually look at cryptographic tools here and different like surveillance, kind of like encrypted multipolar surveillance strategies and so forth. And so, yeah, I wonder how these two errors and the trilemma interrelate in your head, because to me, the trilemma kind of falls into these two errors. And then the distinction between capitalism and the economy between capitalism participation isn't that strong. Yeah, that's such a good question. I think, so there are two ways of looking at it. I almost, I'm like trying to see it in my head. I almost see each vertex of the trilemma as, you know, possibly pinging between centralization and decentralization. And so if we look at market mechanisms, for example, um, they are extremely decentralized in some senses, but they leave a lot of space for centralization historically, right? And so, you know, you have to, to, to ensure that a market doesn't centralize, suddenly you've, you've reinvented things like antitrust, you've reinvented regulation. Like it's quite difficult to have a, a organically fully decentralized market without seeing decentralization kind of coming up. And I think the crypto ecosystem is a speed run of this in a lot of ways because despite this incredible focus on decentralization and, and meaningful, I think, technological advances towards it, you know, functionally, there was a lot of centralization coming out of it. And so I think if we're not careful in building polycentrism into each vertex, either of them can swing toward decentralization or centralization. So even for something like safety, there is, you know, it tends more towards a centralized worldview where you imagine this like mass surveillance techno state or something like that. But, you know, if that fractures, then you might swing toward the decentralization problem again, if you're not careful in setting up those checks and balances. And similarly for participation, I mean, some of the early socialist thinking was around saying, the most participatory thing you can have is a highly centralized state, right? Um, and so I think it's almost like the dichotomy is applied to each. And therefore, broadly, we have to look at polycentric systems because I at least don't have trust that systems that are built decentralized like completely will stay that way. Whereas I think systems that um, are, are built polycentric have a greater shot at stability or something like that. Yeah, I think I would generally agree. We also talk a bit about like this evolution of decentralization and centralization in this one post that I linked. And I think that centralization problems also, they appear at an upper level or an upper layer almost. You know, you had first like these large computers then the home computer, then you had the internet, then you had centralizing mm-hmm. like large tech giants. Then you have their crypto ecosystem that's built decentralized. Within that, you have large blockchains like Ethereum that's uh, rely really on like less decision mechanisms. So it's like interesting how it's almost like this evolution that kind of travels with the centralizing dynamics and it's definitely always like pulling to some extent. 
Okay. All of this was really, yeah. really exciting and fantastic. Thank you for joining us. I'm super curious now. Tell us maybe in the last two minutes, a little bit more practically moving all the way to philosophy, all the way down to practice. What are you guys doing now? What is this new institute that you've been really co-founding and shepherding? What is it focused on? How can people get involved? Are there any open Uh, questions for collaboration or requests that you have. I think people, as you can tell, are very excited about the project. What can they do to engage with it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, first, because I know we're almost at time, I'll put my email and Saffron's email in the chat so we can continue the conversation there. Um, yeah, so I think we are most excited about running experiments around these kinds of things as soon as possible, because I think there is a lot of overhang basically in terms of the conceptual versus what's being put into practice. And so we want to start piloting citizens assemblies for input into AI systems. And we're already working on that. We want to start piloting kind of the use of language models for these democratic convenings. And we're working on some early versions of that. Um, Saffron is working on something that's like a crux finder between conversations, for example, and those kinds of questions. We're working on uh, new corporate forms for technological development. And so uh calling it the collective, the CI corporation. Um, so can we think about just like basic capped returns plus quadratic funding type mechanisms as applied to corporations that allow for more public input or collective input into uh, where profits go? Those are the major experiments we're currently doing. I think we are really excited to enable and facilitate more experiments like that. And we're also fundraising for a microgrants program to support that kind of stuff. And so That's kind of the direction in which we'd love to surface interest from people. Um, and then broadly, we're trying to put together case studies of successful experiments in this space because I think there is so much desire to learn more and model off of what's already been done. So, you know, we're looking for crowdsource input on that too. And then broadly, we're incredibly early. And so uh, generally feedback and kind of collaboration is very welcome. Thank you so much. This was really, really wonderful. I'm delighted that you're here. I should also point out for other folks in this group that Divya and a few others on this call, but also beyond this call, will be joining us in person in San Francisco in July, hopefully. And so this is our intelligent cooperation workshop. So we're basically many people in this group are meeting to discuss mostly new forms of how humans and AIs can cooperate using cryptographic and security and computing technologies, which are a big, I guess, close to the heart of many folks in this group. And so if you're interested in joining this workshop, we still have some spots left and the form to do that is here on the website. All right. Thank you so, so much to be here. This was an absolute delight. I can't wait to see you soon again in person and to see many of you again for our next chat. Thank you, everyone. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.